Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This week on Next, from the New England News Collaborative, Racism and Accountability. We talk to an activist who says today's call-out culture is toxic and advocates a different approach with allies. I think that we need to seek a different set of tools that are centered on respecting not only the human rights of the person who was harmed, but the human rights of the person who did the harm. And after the rise of protests against police brutality, we look at what has changed from police reforms to employee walkouts. The idea of like facing a huge corporation, you know, it's a scary thing. It's not something you take lightly. Plus, refugees from the Democratic Republic of Congo find community in an Orthodox Armenian church in Rhode Island and with a man named Manuk. When I talk to Manuk, I say, Manuk, I don't like America. What's up? And I say, I need to have the car. I need to have the everything. I say, no. Everything goes step by step. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative. 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. It's been more than two months since tens of thousands of people began marching in protest following the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many other Black Americans by police. The protests planted seeds, inspiring debates in the halls of government and spurring employees to take a stand against their own companies. WBUR's Adrian Ma reports on the growing trend of employee activism. If you happen to be shopping at the Cambridge Port Whole Foods last month, you might have gotten the vibe that something was up. Small groups of employees are huddled together, whispering. One by one, they take off their plain face coverings and replace them with masks that say Black Lives Matter across the front. And, one by one, they're called into the manager's office and told, that mask goes against company dress code. Take it off or go home. So, what do they do? They walk out. In front of the store, the 25 employees are greeted by supporters. And that is when it becomes clear that this is a full-on organized protest aimed at getting Whole Foods to let workers wear Black Lives Matter clothing. That's such a basic statement, and for that to like be considered controversial or political just really doesn't sit right with me. Severino Frith is a cashier at the store. He says this is the fifth time he's been sent home for wearing the mask, and he knows he's risking his job by walking out. The idea of like facing a huge corporation, you know, it's a scary thing. It's not something you take lightly or do for just anything, you know. What's happening here is happening with companies all around the country. Employees are calling out their own bosses to take action against racism. We see this dramatic shift in the cultural zeitgeist. All of a sudden, the issues that they are standing for are the issues that their customers are standing for. Ethan Ruan studies labor issues at Harvard Business School. He says workers are feeling emboldened after seeing protests over racial justice get mainstream attention. That goes for employees at huge corporations like Starbucks and smaller ones, like the local bakery chain, known as... Just a sec. Is it Tata or Tate? 
I, you know, it's funny. I have a, I have a neighbor who used to work there and I don't know. I think it's, I, I don't know. I think it's, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we looked it up. It's Tate. Anyway, last month, a group of current and former Tate employees demanded the company do more to support the Black Lives Matter movement and address allegations of racial bias within the company. And to put pressure on it, they essentially used protest tactics, petitions, an open letter, a picket line. The interesting thing is that this is not new. Ruan explains workers who are unhappy with their employer generally have three options. Speak up, shut up, or quit. In the past, many employees would organize and speak up through a union. But in the past few decades, unions have shrunk. Today, only about 10% of workers belong to one. What's replaced this formal organizing power is organizing through social media. And over the past couple of decades, companies have become more vulnerable to activist pressures. That's according to Mae McDonald. She studies corporations and social movements at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton Business School. I think it is in part because all the work that firms have done to portray themselves through cause marketing as caring about issues has in fact now attracted a generation of of young millennial workers who care about the issues. McDonald says research shows younger workers care a lot about whether their company's stance on social issues aligns with their own. They're more willing to select those firms. They'll work for those firms for less money than they would otherwise. They're more likely to stay for those firms, and they're better workers. That's why companies nowadays increasingly tout their views on environmental responsibility, fair trade practices, and yes, racial justice. And this can get tricky, especially when employees believe the company is being hypocritical. That's what happened with employees at the Whole Foods in Cambridge. We're easy to replace, 100%. I know for a fact, like, we can get fired one day and then there's someone new. Cedric Juarez was one of the protesters who walked off the job because he couldn't wear the Black Lives Matter mask. This is the best job I've ever had. But if they can't support, like, my brothers and sisters, then how can I work in a place that doesn't support it? Rather than quit, Juarez says he'll keep protesting the company policy. And if that fails, there's always that other American tradition. Take him to court. In fact, a couple of weeks after that walkout, several workers sued Whole Foods. Many labor experts say this kind of employee activism has been on the rise for years. So companies may want to come up with new ways to address workers' concerns before they spiral into protests. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adrian Ma. We continue our look at the impact of the protests, turning now to Vermont, where thousands have marched demanding overhauls to policing. A new Vermont Public Radio, Vermont PBS poll found state residents have complicated and mixed feelings when it comes to law enforcement and race. While 61% of respondents said they had a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in their local law enforcement, about half also say police in Vermont occasionally or regularly discriminate against people of color. VPR's Liam Elder Connors reports. In front of the State House in Montpelier on a recent Saturday, a group of about 250 people waving American flags and signs reading, Support Our Police, gathered. The rally was an attempt to show solidarity with Vermont cops, who pro-police organizers say have been unfairly criticized in recent weeks. Michael Hall, former Manchester police chief and now the executive director of the Vermont Police Coalition, told the crowd most police officers are good people. Please do not paint us with the same brush as you do the very few 
that don't do the right thing. But about 15 minutes into the rally, about 150 racial justice protesters marched to the front of the crowd, chanting Black Lives Matter. They shouted over each pro-police speaker for the next hour. William Dunkley of Westford was one of the counter-protesters. You know, the support the law enforcement rally folks were able to have some of their messages heard, but then pretty much we made a lot of noise and probably some people couldn't hear much anymore and we just really disrupted things and they went home early. The rally and counter-protest highlighted debate playing out across the country as cities and states mulled dramatic changes to police departments in the wake of George Floyd's death. In Vermont, state and local leaders have already made some changes. In Burlington, the state's largest city, the city council approved a plan to reduce its police force by 30 percent. City officials in Barrie voted to create a citizen panel to review complaints against the cops. At the state level, Governor Phil Scott signed a bill that bans chokeholds, required state police to get body cameras, and tied some state funding of local law enforcement to the collection of traffic stop data, something that was mandated years ago but isn't consistently done. While a new VPR Vermont PBS poll indicates a majority of respondents have trust in their local law enforcement, it also shows 49% said police regularly or occasionally discriminate against people of color. 44% said it rarely or never happens. Well, I think that everybody has implicit biases. Nancy Stockwell of Woodstock is one of the poll respondents. She says that while she has some good experiences with the police, she knows that isn't the case for everyone. It seems that there have been incidences within the state of Vermont where it has been shown that there has been racial bias. Statewide traffic stop data shows that black drivers are more likely to be pulled over than white drivers. Black drivers are also more likely to be searched, but less likely to have contraband than white people who are searched. University of Vermont economics professor Stephanie Seguino says that traffic stops are one of the most common areas where people interact with police, making it a good window into how people are treated by law enforcement. Some things we can measure pretty accurately, and they can be good proxies for other types of you know, economic or social outcomes. And that's what I think is going on with the traffic stop data, is I think it's a proxy for other types of police relations. Seguino co-authored the first examination of the state's traffic stop data. Seguino's 2017 study only looked at data for 2015, but she says a new study out this fall will look at several years of traffic stops. Besides the traffic stop data, there's not much statewide information on other police interactions, though Burlington has released reports on use of force incidents and arrest rates, both of which show racial disparities. That dearth of information is an issue that the Department of Public Safety is hoping to tackle. Commissioner Michael Sherling says the state hopes to create a public portal that would display data from all police departments in Vermont. No personal identifying information, but you should be able to drill in by community, by county, by uh, type of call, by type of crime, by use of force, by race data. South Burlington Police Chief Sean Burke says having statewide support to collect that data would be valuable, especially since most police departments aren't big enough to have their own data analysts like Burlington does. Burke says he's not surprised that the VPR Vermont PBS poll showed a high level of trust in local law enforcement, but he says given racial disparities in things like traffic stops, agencies should continue efforts to improve. I don't see this as a, as a time for the police to be defensive or to feel sorry for ourselves. I see it as a time to listen, learn, and adapt 
and meet the needs of our specific communities. Mark Hughes, Executive Director of Justice for All, an advocacy group that aims to dismantle systemic racism, says he's not surprised by the poll results either. Hughes, who's on the Burlington Police Commission, also says he would have preferred the poll to include a racial breakdown of respondents. It is incredibly important what black and brown people think about these issues. And if we're not measuring it, uh, then we'll never be able to manage that. Uh, nor we will we be able to move from an anecdotal discussion to something where we're dealing with empirical data to really make policy changes. The conversations around police reform in Vermont are far from over. Sherling, the public safety commissioner, says the department has a 10-point plan that all local law enforcement should follow. The, quote, modernization plan includes adding more community oversight of police and updating training requirements. The legislature is also expected to take up reform measures, like a statewide use of force policy, when they return this month. Tabitha Moore, president of the Rutland Area NAACP, says she hopes lawmakers will use this moment to ask communities specific questions about how they want to change policing. Finding ways to um, meaningfully allow community to lead this process. You know, seeing government as the stewards of the community rather than as the people that that dictate. The legislature has been holding virtual public hearings this month on police reform efforts before they reconvene for a session at the end of August. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Liam Elder Connors. Other New England states have also taken steps toward police reform. Connecticut passed a comprehensive law on police accountability. The Connecticut Mirror reports among its measures, the state created an independent inspector general to investigate police misconduct, banned chokeholds in most circumstances, and is requiring body and dash cameras. New Hampshire also banned chokeholds and will require officers to report misconduct on the job. When a peer says something you think is racist, ignorant, or wrong, what do you do? Most people agree that staying silent is not a good idea. But do you talk to them privately or take them to task publicly? Known as call-out culture, some think public shaming is a way to further social justice and change. But not everyone agrees with that approach. Loretta Ross is one of them. She's an activist, visiting associate professor at Smith College in Massachusetts, and the author of the upcoming book, Calling in the Calling Out Culture, Detoxing Our Movement. Ross strongly supports calling out people in power, but says call-out culture among peers of the same social status is toxic. Last year, we spoke to her on Next. They immediately get defensive because they feel like you're attacking their character, their morality. And so it doesn't produce the positive outcome that you may desire when the people have shut down, become defensive, become angry, and double down on what they've said or done. Today, we want to continue that conversation with Professor Ross in the context of recent protests that have brought more awareness of systemic racism in America. Professor Ross, welcome back to Next. Thanks for having me on your show. So before we get to your views on call-out culture, I want to learn a little bit more about what motivated you to become an activist. And it's my understanding that your activism began in the 1970s at the age of 16 when you were a first-year student at Howard University. What happened? Well, my consciousness began to get raised even before I came to Howard. I was the victim of rape and incest in my high school years, and I ended up having that baby. And so I came to Howard as a single mother with trauma. And the first things that 
people put in my hands were the autobiography of Malcolm X and the Black Woman by Tony Cade. And that rocked my world because I had not really been exposed to a lot of political reading before that. I came from a very conservative family. And so it took off from there. Washington, D.C. was a hotbed of political activism. So amongst all those experiences, your role as an activist is born. Was it apparent to you at that age that call-out culture or cancel culture was toxic? We used to spend a lot of time trying to decide who was politically relevant, because that was our favorite word at the time. It became quite sectarian. People criticizing each other for the wrong way they were thinking or the wrong way they were dressing because it was the day of the big Afro. And through the years, what I noticed was that many times, even though we argued, fussed, and fought, we really did figure out a way to unite in the face of a common opponent. And so what drew me to the call-out book that I'm writing was about Six years ago, I observed that somehow social media had made the criticisms that we were making privately to each other become very public and very minor because they weren't really over anything substantive sometimes. It was just the way someone looked or the way someone used the wrong word. And so I said, well, why aren't we calling each other in? Because, in fact, a call-in is a call-out done with love. It seems like um, anger could be a main emotion behind calling out. Would part of this practice of calling in be about channeling that anger into something else? Well, anger is a logical response to being hurt. Your first impulse is to hurt others. But anger is not a real sustainable emotion because I've found in my experience that anger eats me up inside. It doesn't provide me any joy. It doesn't provide me any peace. It really depends on my analysis of how intentional the harm was. I mean, if you hurt me on purpose, then you're going to get a totally different response than calling in. But if it was inadvertent, then I'm going to pause, stop and ask, well, when you said that, could you tell me a little bit about more of what was going on with you when you said that? I've had dreadlocks for 40 years, for example. I actually had a woman searching for a way to compliment my hair. And she said, I love your hair. Do you wash it? <laughs> and I, you know, it took me aback. I wanted to reason, like, yes, I wash my hair. Do you wash yours? <laughs> but I realized that she was trying to figure out what dreadlocks were. And so I said to her, yes, I do. And do you want to know more about my hair? And, and just to clarify, I mean, you're not suggesting that people just let things go at all. You're just saying hold people accountable in a different way. Absolutely. It's not about letting people off the hook or giving people a pass, but it's seeking to not do more harm when you're trying to hold someone accountable. I think that we need to seek a different set of tools that are centered on respecting not only the human rights of the person who was harmed, but the human rights 
of the person who did the harm because no one comes out the womb wanting to be a human rights violator. That is a trained conditioning. Now, there are people that I do deplatform. Hypocrites and Nazis are at the top of my list, but at the same time, I really don't think that I'm surrounded by hypocrites and Nazis. As I mentioned at the top, you've said that you fully support calling out people in positions of power. Now, some would argue that many white people, like myself, are inherently in a position of power because they're white and have benefited from white supremacy. So they might say, you know, it's not a problem if they're held accountable publicly. What do you think about that? Well, white supremacy is a body of ideas. It's not a race of people. If you have those toxic ideas around white privilege and white superiority, then I'm probably going to have a different conversation with you because that means you subscribe to those ideas. If you are living whiteness differently, where you're rejecting white supremacy and and trying to manage and deal with your white entitlement, then I'm going to have a different conversation with you. The other thing about white supremacist ideas is that you don't have to be white to have them. One of the things that seems to be happening, and maybe you have a different perspective on this, is this kind of group think like there is one way to be anti-racist. There is one way to be an activist. And if you don't do that one way, you're not anti-racist. You're not a good ally. You're not a good activist. Are you seeing that heightened in this moment? Well, I think that people are leaning far more into judging each other's activism than perhaps I've experienced in the past because they have an artificially induced expectation of how pure politics should be or how pure activism should be. And that doesn't deal with the messiness of life, politics, or activism. You don't really have to criticize other people's activism because there's enough oppression to go around and they can work on it in their way and you can work on it in your way. And trust me, you'll never run out of oppression. And yet I find that young people have this false illusion that there's only one perfect way to be an activist. And they are immensely self-critical because they always think they're not doing enough, that they should be doing more, that they've got to stay silent in case somebody calls them out because they might use the wrong word or suggest the wrong strategy. And instead of building the movement, we're building fear in the movement. That was Loretta Ross, an activist and visiting associate professor at Smith College in Massachusetts. Her book, Calling in the Calling Out Culture, Detoxing Our Movement, comes out in 2021. It's that point in the show where we want to hear from you, our listeners. What do you think about the state of activism today? How do you hold people accountable? Or what's your goal? Share your perspective at 860-275-7595. Again, 860-275-7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. One more time, that's next at ctpublic.org. And thank you. After the break, tensions over the Black Lives Matter movement in Vietnamese American communities in Massachusetts. Plus, baseball in a pandemic and without fans? 
a former player reflects on the moment. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. Communities across the country and in New England are coming to terms with the Black Lives Matter movement in different ways. As Philip Martin of the WGBH News Center for Investigative Reporting tells us, it's an issue that stirred up a painful divide in Vietnamese American communities in Massachusetts. Earlier this summer, first-time State Representative Tram Nguyen of Andover released a video on YouTube explaining why she thought it important to support Black Lives Matter's underlying message. We can't fight against racism directed towards our community while standing complicit in a system that disproportionately discriminates, devalues, and criminalizes and brutalizes our Black friends and neighbors. Representative Wynn says she knew that some within the area's estimated 30,000-plus Vietnamese community would react negatively. But she said she did not expect her embrace of Black Lives Matter to lead to personal attacks on her and what she calls vile anti-Black rhetoric. I also didn't anticipate equating Black Lives Matter to socialism and communism. Complicity with communism are fighting words in Vietnamese communities. That accusation was allegedly hurled by Bao Chow Kelly, a pro-Trump activist from New Hampshire. Here's Chow Kelly at an anti-Black Lives Matter rally in Concord, New Hampshire, attended by armed counter-demonstrators. So you want to say why you're here? I'm here for All Lives Matter. Yeah, okay. And tell, awesome. these, and tell these Black Lives Matter people to go home. Yes. <laughs> WGBH News reached out to Chow Kelly via Facebook and telephone, but received no reply. Chow Kelly, with a large following on social media, has organized and taken part in several anti-BLM rallies. At one or two, she crossed paths with Tammy Wynn, Representative Tram Wynn's younger sister. Tammy Wynn is in her early 20s and believes that Vietnamese her age support the BLM movement overall. She is shocked by what she is hearing and reading. Wynn says some of what she's seeing is not just racism, it's more specific than that. There's so much anti-blackness rhetoric within the community. I'd start joining like Facebook groups to read more about why folks are so against the current movement, I'm just still in the appalled level of it. Nam Pham is an elder in the Vietnamese community and Massachusetts Assistant Secretary for Housing and Economic Development. As North Vietnamese troops moved into Saigon in 1975, Pham made his way to the United States, eventually settling in Dorchester's Fields Corner in 1981. We just needed a place we could call home. Pham explains that most Vietnamese in the area came from the south of the country and were ardently anti-communist. Many identified with the Republican Party and viewed African Americans generally as liberal. Also, some accepted racist stereotypes of African Americans as criminals and people to be feared. But Pham says he's tried over the years to explain to fellow Vietnamese that the community would not be as successful as it is if not for black Americans. Uh, Without the fight for civil rights, Uh, by African Americans, uh, our life in America would have been much more difficult. And on top of that, uh, many of our smaller businesses become prosperous because our customers are African Americans. Lisette Lay arrived in the U.S. as a child. 
She's executive director of Viet Aid, a community development organization in Dorchester's Fields Corner. I'm Vietnamese American, but our staff and our board are racially diverse. Our preschool is a racially diverse preschool. Caribbean students, Latinx students who come through our preschool. She says Vietnamese, facing their own fight with racism and economic disruption in neighborhoods including Dorchester, must come together with African Americans because they have little choice. If black folks are displaced from Phil's Corner, it's not like there's special protections that will make sure that Vietnamese folks don't get displaced from Phil's Corner, right? Like because of gentrification and whatnot, we also have to see that other folks are fighting for their right to stay in their homes as well. Black Lives Matter demonstrations are planned throughout August. Some young Vietnamese activists say they plan to be there to show their support. They expect that pro-Trump Vietnamese counter-demonstrators will also be there. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Philip Martin. It's been about three weeks since Major League Baseball's opening day. And like other sports, teams have played in isolation and without fans. But they've taken steps to make the season feel normal. Here to talk with us is Doug Glanville, an ESPN analyst, author, and former Major League Baseball player who's based in Connecticut. Doug, welcome to Next. All right. Thanks for having me. Great to be on. Well, it's great to have you. And I want to ask you, some teams are using cutouts of fans and canned crowd noise. And in case our listeners haven't heard it yet, here's what it sounded like at a recent Red Sox game against the Mets. What's this one in the air? This one is high and deep to left. Davis going back and it's gone. So the the Red Sox won that game. But Doug, what do you think? How's that can sound? I mean, it's certainly how fans are digesting the sport now because of the, the distance where we're at home. You know, then it just comes to understanding the timing, the crescendos, and sort of giving it as, as natural a feel as possible. But certainly that, that sounded pretty authentic for my end. <laughs> Yeah, so you've played in front of a stadium full of fans. What was that like in comparison? There's so many subtleties in sort of the inflections of the fans that I don't think you could capture it You know exactly. Players are conditioned to know exactly how it kind of plays on the road, at home. You know, I don't think they've been playing, for example, booing on the road, right? So I think they've tried <laughs> to, so I think they've tried to avoid that. And of course, that's part of the game. But there's no, you can't replace the energy of fans with canned noise or cutouts in your stadiums. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And and I think the other aspect of it is it's a little bit oversimplifying it when you try to reduce fans to sort of a mob. And so, yes, I understand what they're trying to simulate, but that could never sum up and capture the whole spectrum of experiences a player has with fans. And I think that's a good thing to recognize that with humility, that there is something so magical and so unique about what the fans bring to a game that you can't copy it. And that's okay. And that gives us something aspirationally that we're striving to recapture. And we're also gaining a certain level of, of appreciation for it in a way that only can happen when it's taken away. The NBA formed a bubble in Disney World and as of this taping hasn't had a major coronavirus outbreak. The MLB has gone a different route with players traveling to different cities to play and going home after games and there have been outbreaks. Most recently, there were more people from the St. Louis Cardinals who tested positive. 
what does this do for a team's chances at a postseason run? Well, this is so much uncertainty within what we're all experiencing, but certainly from a competitive balance baseball standpoint, uh, they, they don't know what's going to happen. And, and you've had two teams now deal with outbreaks. The Cardinals seem to kind of be even ongoing. And I think one of the challenges is you start to look up and you see the Cardinals have only played five games, and then there's teams in their division that have played 17. And at a certain point, that is unsustainable because how do you judge you know the end of the season or who wins the division based on teams that have had so many different levels of gameplay? Uh, they're going to have to continue to evaluate this in real time and make some adjustments as necessary, which I expect are going to be necessary. In a New York Times op-ed that you recently wrote, you say, quote, we hope that we will one day retire this virus with an asterisk to our scariest of histories and that baseball and other sports will help get us there by aggressively gathering information about the risks we are all facing. How do you think baseball can help us gather information during this time? Well, for starters, you know, they're truly on the front lines of this virus when it comes to electively being constantly exposed in, in certain ways. And to some degree, it's an experiment. We're watching uh, an environment that in theory has the best defenses if you're going to be in this environment. Uh, they have uh, relatively unlimited resources. They have access to testing and quick turnaround times. They have high-performance athletes who are generally healthy and young, and they have the healthcare around them. So all these elements is a window into this virus that would not be uh, seen in the same way if we hadn't had the opportunity to to kind of see what they're experiencing. The more that they're transparent about their experience, the data, the information, what they've learned, the adjustments, the more it benefits us. Doug Glanville is an ESPN analyst and former player. Doug, thanks so much for talking with us. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Coming up. A refugee family flees the Democratic Republic of Congo and finds community in an Orthodox Armenian church in Providence, Rhode Island. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. It's April 2019 in Providence, Rhode Island. We're at an Orthodox Armenian church called St. Vartanans, where a group has gathered for the baptism of eight siblings, refugees from the Democratic Republic of Congo. This next story comes from Mosaic, a podcast about the American immigrant experience produced at the public's radio. It's a story about how a community of Orthodox Armenians, immigrants with their own tragic history, is helping present-day refugees find their way to an American dream. As hosts Ana Gonzalez and Alex Nunes report, in the hundred-plus years since the Armenian genocide, these Armenian Americans have established themselves in Rhode Island and the United States in general. It's hard to believe that some of the best legislators came off that street. That's Manug Kaprielian. He's a staple of the Armenian community in Providence. And he's talking about what he calls the original community of Armenians up on Douglas Avenue in Smith Hill. We had people that didn't know the one word of English language, but became the chief justice of the Rhode Island family court. But obviously, getting to that point is a process. 
It takes generations of families and community to create stability and wealth. Yeah, and those first few years after someone immigrates to the United States are particularly difficult because it's an entirely new world, and they're usually realizing that America isn't what they thought it was going to be. Sometimes we, we're watching the, the move for the Unity State. As you can see, ah, oh, this is the, the life for Unity State. This is Clement. He's 20 and the oldest of those eight kids in St. Vartanans. I'm sitting with him and his mom, Pachuna, in their apartment on the south side of Providence. Because if you see the 50 Cent, the little one, sometimes you watch the move, the, the Van Damme. You know Van Damme? Van Damme. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Chris Brown. Right? The Chris Brown. Yeah. Sometimes like that, the, the superstar for this, for this country. So this is the life for Unity State. So Jean-Claude Van Damme, 50 Cent, and Lil Wayne are Clement's ideas of classic Americans before he gets here. Yeah, but he's finding out that the American life in the movies and music videos he and his siblings love isn't the life he gets to lead. But I don't think many things in the future. But for this time, I think about my school. Because I want to start to school to finish my school. This is my project, the first project I have. And every day I pray to God to help me to found this school. Mm -hmm. This is my future, I think, every day. But Clement can't go to college because he hasn't been able to get a green card. And you need a green card to get federal financial aid. So instead, he got a job washing dishes in Cranston. It helps his mom pay the bills refugee resettlement agencies won't cover. And she's working too. So she works as a housekeeper in a hotel. This is Pachuna, Clement's mom, speaking to me through an interpreter named Winifred. She's not going to serve her children breakfast. She just prepares everything because she has to leave at 5 o'clock in the morning. Pachuna takes three buses to get to work in Newport. It takes two hours each way. Which hotel in Newport? Chanel Hotel. Chanel Hotel. Okay. The Chandler Hotel is one of the fanciest places in Newport, by the way. Yeah, and Pachuna works there all day and then comes home to cook for her eight kids. All right, so just to be clear, the family is getting help from resettlement agencies here, right? Yeah. Yeah, so they weren't just plopped down in the middle of a foreign country to fend for themselves. No, they weren't. They have case managers at Dorcas International, and they're getting additional support from the Armenian community. Okay, yeah, all right, got it. So let's talk about that a little bit more, though. How does a family of nine Congolese refugees end up in an Orthodox Armenian church? I mean, that seems almost random. How do they wind up being baptized there? Okay, to understand that, we need to go back about 40 years to a small village in the Democratic Republic of Congo. She's born in Uvira. Uvira is on the east side of DRC Congo. Pachuna lives there with her family until she's 17, and she gets married. She goes to live with her husband's family in another town. She has two sons almost immediately, and then the war starts. So it was a civil war with many different factions. Again, that's Winifred, Pachuna's interpreter. Her husband then left her when the war had started. Her husband goes to fight in the war, and Pachuna lives with her father-in-law. She comes back from the market one day and sees him being killed by rebel soldiers. They took her. They captured her. Pachuna is crying as she retells this next part. Uh, so the soldiers, quotes, uh, took her and wounded her with a knife, stabbing her in her upper leg. 
they let her go. But she's all alone. Her husband's still fighting, and her only family has just been killed. So she takes her two babies, straps one to her front and the other to her back. And she walks. She walks for six miles on a wounded leg until she comes across another woman. And she explained to this woman that she did not know where she was going, that she had seen a person killed in front of her own eyes and she was traveling, fleeing a war zone. And so the woman said, well, come and stay with me. They stay together for two weeks. Pachuna heals. But then it becomes clear that this village in the Congo isn't safe from the war either. So Pachuna and this woman cross the nearby lake into Burundi. It's the year 2000. And Pachuna never goes back to the Congo. So what happens after that? Does she start trying to come to the U.S.? It's kind of unclear, but the first thing Pachuna does is register herself and her sons as refugees with the U.N. And then they settle them in a refugee camp? No, she actually starts working, and she sells vegetables at a market. She's self-reliant, taking care of her babies with some help from new friends— And Pachuna lives like this for months and months, until one day she's at the market selling vegetables and somebody recognizes her and they say, I know you and I know your husband and he's here in Burundi. I'm going to go get him. What? (laughs) I thought he was fighting a war. He was. He's not fighting anymore, I think. So he's alive and he's in the same town in this other country, just like Pachuna. Yeah, and I asked Pachuna how she felt in this crazy moment. Like, was she mad at him for just leaving her with two babies? Or is she extremely happy that he came back into her life? But she's very matter-of-fact. She says that the person brings her husband to her, and then they just start living together again. So is he a refugee too? At this point, I don't think so. It's all a little confusing. But Pachuna tries to get him added to her case with the U.N., But they tell her that the deadline to add a spouse has passed. So what did they do then? Nothing. It doesn't really affect their daily lives, at that point anyway. It becomes important later. But they're living in an apartment. Pachuna keeps selling vegetables. And her husband is a skilled tailor, so they're able to make ends meet. And they live like this in Burundi for 15 years. And they have six more kids. So now there's Clement... Armand, Henri, Claudine, Katia, Gigi, Edgar, and baby Victor. Fifteen years, eight kids. That's like a whole life. Why did they want to leave after all those years? Well, Clement answers that question best. Burundi is not my country. My country is Congo. But I'm a refugee in Burundi. We don't like to live in Burundi or to live in my country because in my country, no peace. And Burundi is the same thing. Police in Burundi can stop anyone they feel like at any time and ask them for their IDs and then tell them that their cards aren't valid or aren't even their ID cards. They beat people up, arrest them for weeks, and won't stop until you pay them enough money. Clement says it's worse for Congolese refugees. There's too many, too many Congolese live in Burundi. They pass on the border. Too many, many people, and they kill them on the the border. Really? Yeah. From From Congo to come in Burundi, yeah. So Clement and his family understandably want a safer life. Yeah, but they don't know when that will be. But one day, in 2018, Pachuna gets a phone call. They call mom on the phone and say, we need need to see you. It's the family's case manager at the UN. They tell Pachuna that she and her eight kids are cleared to be resettled in the United States. Yeah, we're so happy on the house. Mom say, 
but now my problem is finished because now I'm going in America, everything they're going to doing very well. For Clement, America means peace, security, and free school. It's the home of Jean-Claude Van Damme and 50 Cent. It's the promise of what he calls the good life. But the U.N. says only Pachuna and her kids can be resettled, not her husband. Right. He's going to have to stay in Burundi. Pachuna tells her husband this is a chance to give their children something she never had. Peace and endless opportunity. And she can't pass that up. So she said, you've done everything for me that you could, but I should just continue on my own trajectory. And she told him that she would work to try to get him with her. Now, this is obviously a bigger moment and a bigger conversation for Pachuna than she's telling us. Right. Because you don't just leave your spouse to go to another country forever with your kids without some tears and some emotion. And while Pachuna doesn't really talk about her emotions like that, Clement does. That's not easy. Everybody think about him. But I cry about him because every summer... I was together with that. He told me, be strong only. Be strong for everything because the family, all the family, they look at about you because I'm not over there. Everything I want to do if I was over there, if I, I will be over there, you want to do that in my place because I'm not, I said, okay, I want to do that. So it's the end of May 2018. Pachuna is a single mom for the second time in her life, and she and her children are on their first ever plane ride to a place they'd never heard of, Providence, Rhode Island. And on the east side of Providence, a landlord is getting one of his apartments ready for a family of nine refugees. They're not going to end up living in a place like this, but it is their first stop. It's Manu Caprielian again. He owns a fancy apartment building on the east side of Providence in Wayland Square, Normally, visiting Brown professors and minor league baseball players rent his apartments. But for the past two years, Manuk has been working with Dorcas International, providing an apartment for refugees when they first get here until they find a more permanent place to live. He's housed over 70 people. There's a figure that every second, 11 refugees are made in this world somewhere. And it's hardly seven seconds. It's hardly six seconds of helping refugees. It just pales to the whole larger picture of what's going on in this world. And my gift is I can see that first moment of feeling freedom. <laughs> this is the, the pictures, the when we're coming, the first day. Back in Pachuna's apartment, Manu is sitting with us. And he shows me a photo he took the moment Pachuna walked through the door of his apartment. May 30th, 2018. She has the youngest kid, Victor, strapped to her back. And she's beaming into the camera. No sadness, only joy. You look so happy. Yeah. I just, I, more than any other family, remembered that first moment when they walked in here with the credentials hanging off them. And the, the smile, and they were singing. And I found out when I translated, they were singing the Lord's Prayer in Swahili. family are Christians, and back in Burundi, going to church was a huge source of community and fun. So Clement asks his caseworker, a Congolese man, if they can go to church with him. 
but it's far away, and he can't fit all nine of the mulilikwas in his car. So they ask Manuk if they could go to his church. And I'm guessing they don't realize it's an Armenian Orthodox church? No, they don't. So I'd have to order two Ubers. And I had to make up like a baby seat for one of them because they wouldn't take them. And we went off to church. But Sunday, the first Sunday, he bring all the family to the church. We pray for everything. The church is so surprised because the church from Manox, all everybody is the white people. My family only is the African people. See, the Armenian church is not only an ancient institution, but it's also the main place Armenians keep their culture alive in the United States. And it's not often they get new non-Armenian parishioners. And that's the one thing about the Orthodox Armenian Church and the first nation to adopt Christianity. A quick change in that church comes every 600 years. That was an excerpt of the podcast Mosaic from the Publix Radio in Rhode Island. The story goes on to talk about the siblings' baptism and what's next for the family, a new house and school. Because when I talk to Monica, I say, Monica, I don't like America. What's up? And I say, I need to have the car. I need to have the everything. I say, no, everything goes step by step. We'll have a link to the entire episode of the show so you can check it out at our website, nextnewengland.org. And that's it for next this week. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Also, will you do us a favor? We're surveying listeners to get their take on the show. What you like, what you might do differently. Can you take a moment to tell us? We have a link at nextnewengland.org. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Daniela Luna is our intern. All the music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and the Public's Radio. Radio.